The views and opinions expressed by the guests on the following program do not necessarily represent those of Mark Radio, The Shepherd, or its advertisers. From the studios of The Shepherd Radio Network, it's Afternoons with Mike. This next hour is all about our walk with Jesus with local pastors, newsmakers, people who are making a difference for the gospel. Now, here is your host, Mike Gilland. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the program today. Afternoons with Mike here on the Shepherd Radio Network. On the line with me today, a a, a very difficult story, but one that must be told. And it's, it's painful to hear. I get it. It's painful what Americans are going through. But on the line is a dad who lost a very special daughter. Scott Shera from up around the Green Bay, Wisconsin area is with me today. Scott, uh, first of all, thank you for being on my program and welcome to Afternoons with Mike. Well, the pleasure is mine, Mike. I am honored to be on your show. Well, this is uh, this has to be followed then with a statement. I am very sorry for what you've gone through. Uh, Cindy and I lost a child. We only had him for nine hours. Uh, he was um, with us just a brief time. You had your daughter, Grace, for a lot longer than that. Uh, tell everyone, if you will, the story of your Grace. So we had Grace for 19 years. We named her Grace after God's grace, and boy, she she certainly lived up to it. She had a... Uh, um, love not just for the Lord, which was easy to see, but just a genuine love for other people. And you know, we we uh we got a blessing in, in having her. Down syndrome children are a wonderful gift. If you know anybody with with Down syndrome, you know that. If if you don't, if you see somebody with Down syndrome, uh, go out of your way to get to know them because they are an absolute gift and, and grace. Uh, certainly, certainly showed that. Yes, indeed. Uh, I think it's important to realize that everyone, because I didn't say that up front, she was Down syndrome and, and a beautiful child. And I, I do, and I think most of us do, know uh, families with a Down child. And I could not agree with you more. Very special. What a gift. There's some in my mind that I'm thinking of right now. And I think every parent who is a parent of a down child would, would rally behind that and say a hearty yes and amen to what you just said. Uh, what happened with her in October of last year? Tell us that story. Well, I'll give you the brief story. Her whole story is well documented on the website, ouramazinggrace.net. But ultimately, I want to just start with uh, she died October 13th of 2021. Uh, Officially, she died of acute respiratory failure and COVID-19 pneumonia on her death certificate. The first cause of death was the truth. The second one was a lie. We took Grace to the hospital with COVID because she had low oxygen saturation. We were on the frontline doctor's protocol and um, we unfortunately got nervous with the low oxygen and saw it as an emergency and fell trapped to the the white coat system. Ultimately, in April, I came to grips with the fact that I believe Grace was murdered. And that is significant. I had at that point about 500 hours of research into Grace's case. I'm going to hit the high point so people can connect the dots. Mm-hmm. This is way bigger than Grace. What happened after I realized that is it opened up the door to what's really happening. And if we have time, I can share that. But the three things that happened to cause Grace's death, why 
why I believe it's murder is the first one, the first cause of the death was acute respiratory failure. Well, that was directly caused by the hospital. They put Grace on a sedation drug called Presidex for four full days before her last day on this earth. The package insert, which are the rules they're supposed to follow, each drug has one of these, says to not use it for more than 24 hours. If you do, it causes acute respiratory failure, which oh my is goodness. exactly the first cause of death. And on Grace's last day, they increased that dose to 14 times the dose that they had done four days earlier. Then, after increasing that dose to that 14 times higher dose level, they gave her two doses of lorazepam, which is an anti-anxiety med, one at 5.46 p.m., one at 5.49 p.m. Grace was already knocked out at this time from the Presidex, but they still gave her the lorazepam anyway. And then the third drug they gave her was morphine. They gave her morphine as an IV push. So in 29 minutes, she had Presidex, morphine, and lorazepam in her system. That would have taken you and I out, Mike. Yep. And in order for that to happen, the doctor had to order the meds. The pharmacist had to sign off on the order. The alarm system had to be overridden because the package insert for morphine says those meds are contraindicated and they cause death. And fourth, a 14-year ICU nurse was in charge of Grace's care that day. So she had to consciously make that decision to take Grace out. So that's the second cause of death. The third cause of death, which is the most egregious, is when our daughter Jessica was in the room with Grace at the time. I had been taken out by an armed guard three days earlier. She called Cindy and I an hour and five minutes after they gave the morphine to Grace panicking. And so we started screaming, my wife and I, on a FaceTime call to the nurses, save our daughter. Jessica had been trying to get them in the room. They wouldn't come in the room. They hollered back to us, she's DNR, do not resuscitate. What? And we hollered, she's not DNR, save our daughter. They would not come in the room. The package insert for morphine says they're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. That didn't happen. We found out subsequently that the doctor put this illegal DNR order on Grace eight minutes after he had increased the dose of Presidex to 14 times the dose. So the DNR order is, to us, the most egregious cause of death. Mm. So this whole thing is in the context of doctors who, you know, we are all of us, I think, on the same page on this. We grew up thinking that, that the, you know, the whole uh, thing about a doctor is their pledge, their, uh, the, their goal, their life aim is to help heal people. And it's almost like the cards were stacked against you guys from the get-go from this hospital. Did you have any sense at all of a, a single advocate? while you were there in that hospital? Sense of what did you say, Mike? Uh, Was there anyone at all that was like an advocate, someone that you could go to? That's a fantastic question. I mean, they this hospital systems now have what's called a hospitalist, and it's a doctor, but they're somewhat the, the marketing arm of the hospital. And so they, they listen, but they're part of the plan. And the system that Grace was involved in is a huge system. It was Ascension Hospital System. And what's going on is that this isn't unique to the hospital that Grace died at, which is one reason we're sharing the story. What's going on is that the hospitals are being paid bonuses to follow protocols that kill people. Those bonuses combined with immunity from liability under the PrEP Act and the shroud of secrecy because 
in almost every other case, we our case is unique because we were in the room and they killed her while we were there. But most cases, there's nobody in the room other than the patient. So there's oh. a shroud of secrecy around their death also. So that combination of shroud of secrecy, bonus payments from the government to follow protocols that, that kill and PrEP Act immunity create a temptation that only the most godly of men could resist. And that's what's happening. And this is happening, just to give you a, a perspective, the first 22 months of COVID, $4 trillion in federal bonus payments were paid to hospitals in the United States. The entire federal budget is only $5 trillion. So in the CARES Act, they authorized these bonus payments. And like I said, in the first 22 months, $4 trillion. So 80% of the entire federal budget for a year was paid out to hospitals to take people out as part of an agenda. Wow. That's really hard to hear. It's really hard to imagine that this is happening in America. And I know that had to be as equally difficult for you and your wife. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's the hardest part to to wrap your head around is the paradigm shift that you can't trust the white coat. And, and they're not all in on this. The hospital that I went to after Grace died, they saved my life. They, they're still following the Hippocratic Oath. But the ones that have bought into the financial uh, uh, program that the government is doing to accomplish an agenda, I mean, they are, they're completely lost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it's, it's not a shock anymore. I mean, we're awake to this, and which is why we're sharing the message. But the people that hear this for the first time, you would instantly say, well, that has to be an anomaly. My hospital isn't like that. And that's why I share the macro numbers of the $4 trillion in bonus payments so people connect the dots. This is real stuff. Uh, one of the hosts that interviewed me about two months ago after he heard the whole story said, God, it's not safe to be hit by a car anymore. The reason is, is because when you get hit by a car, you get taken to the hospital that's closest. You have no time to vet. And if you hit the wrong parameters, you're not going to survive that day. In Grace's case, not only did they mention she had Down syndrome 36 times, they mentioned that we're Christian, we're unvaccinated, we're following the frontline doctor's misinformation campaign. So, yeah, this is, the, this is uh, a huge, huge story. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Grace wasn't vaccinated, you, you believe that was one of the factors, if not one, one at the top of the list, why you feel she was not uh, cared for the way she should have been cared for, right? Absolutely. I think that, in fact, the doctor's report specifically said Grace wouldn't be here if she was vaccinated. Well, I mean, of course, the statistics are coming out. People are seeing that the vaccinated people are of substantially higher risk. Right. Absolutely. So that really doesn't matter. Now, then there's this whole what I would believe that, uh, you you know, the legal case involving the, the DNR, which you said was not in place. There was no DNR. And yet she was let go functionally of care because they said she had a DNR. So that's got to be, that seems like that one would be easier to rectify, to kind of put in into place. What are they saying about that? Well, the hospital's officially saying nothing in as far as being contacted. They did send a report to us 
after I requested a meeting with the CEO and the doctor that said they believed that my wife and I approved the DNR through multiple conversations with the doctor. Well, that's a complete lie. There's Why would we approve a DNR order on our beautiful daughter, number one? But number two, the morning of her last day, the doctor called us at 8 o'clock saying how great of a day Grace had yesterday that we should be working on nutrition so she can get out of here in the mm-hmm. next few days. So why would, you know, and then at 1056, he put the DNR order on Grace. Well, the, the law says specifically that a DNR order has to be signed by the advocate, which was my wife. So if he really believed that we were authorizing the DNR, his next step would have been, um, now that, uh, Mrs. Shara, now that you've approved the DNR, we'd like you to come to the hospital and sign it. Of mm-hmm. course, that didn't happen. Why? Because we never approved the DNR. Fortunately, Tom Renz has taken on our case, and we believe that uh, the DNR, the, the illegal DNR order is going to be a significant piece of the process to yes, yeah. hold Ascension Hospital accountable. Well, th- this uh, has got to catch the attention of everybody because so many people, these DNRs are something that just about every family at one point or another, they deal with. And it's whether it's COVID-related or not, whether it's uh, a young person or an older person, this is this is pretty straight cut stuff here. Down the line, you either have a signed DNR or you don't. And the fact, I mean, that seems to be a part of this puzzle that is certainly screaming out. And I think you're right in in being upset about it. I can't think of a single parent that wouldn't be furious about this. And oh my goodness, it's it's just mind boggling to imagine what you and your wife went through in all of that. Let's pause for a second on that and go now to say you've been in this fight. I mean, this fight has kind of taken your business over. You're devoting uh, your time instead of working in your business. You're you're having to deal with all of this. What 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 would you say, Scott? Is your hope and your prayer at this stage? Because as sad as it is, we can't bring grace back. What what are you working for right now? Well, big picture, my hope is twofold. The uh, of course we don't want anybody to lose somebody in the hospital, and so to have people change their belief relative to what's happening in hospitals would fantastic. The much bigger goal is to share that time is urgent. It is time to reconcile with God if you don't know him. If you do know him, it's time to get grounded in your faith. Because I see us in uh, an extremely urgent time. Uh, I think that things are going to get substantially worse. And then I believe Satan is going to come in as an angel of light. And as this time gets substantially worse, people should be turning to the Christians and wondering why we're calm and we have an opportunity to share the gospel like we'll never have uh, maybe in history. So I'm hoping everyone will take seriously their one talent uh, and do something with it. Ultimately, that's what we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for parents, uh, whether their child is Down syndrome or not? What advice do you have should that child get sick and they have to take them to the hospital? What advice would you give them? Absolutely do not, without any, do under no circumstances leave the child alone. 
Absolutely not. And if you don't have the ability or desire to challenge every single thing that they're doing, hire a professional advocate. We have a couple of links on Grace's website under the resource tab to professional advocates. You have to have advocacy. The old belief that the system is following the Hippocratic Oath is gone. Not mm. all of them, but if you haven't had a chance to vet the hospital ahead of time, you cannot leave your child alone. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, we've sadly seen in the state of New York during the 2020 crisis in nursing homes, how so many people would agree with that and feel that in that moment, their loved ones in those nursing homes were exposed to and just continually exposed to COVID. And uh, there was just no help. There were, were no advocates that were coming up to say, hey, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't put that person in there with this. This person's obviously already weak and, and oh, so many stories like that. Scott, I, I pray for you and your family. I know you've been through so much, but it sounds like you're, you're really working to try to help other people avoid some of the pain and suffering that you guys have gone through. And for that, I'm grateful. Thank you so much for doing that. Well, thanks, Mike. I mean, God has been opening these doors. It's quite a miracle to watch it all happen. I, I feel that we have been blessed beyond measure with all the things that he's allowed us to be able to do with Grace's story. Now, you mentioned the website that uh, people can go and read more about Grace's story and, and the plight that you're uh, in right now. Give us that website one more time, Scott. It's OurAmazingGrace.net. OurAmazingGrace.net. Scott Shara, thank you for being with me today on the program. Thank you, Mike. We'll be right back after this break. This is Afternoons with Mike. EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat serves all your comfort needs. With over 40 years experience, EC Waters is a top train comfort specialist, earning customers for life with integrity. No wonder EC Waters Air Conditioning and Heat has earned a 4.6 or higher out of 5 rating and reviews across all major online platforms. For all your comfort needs, call 407-603-9144 or visit ecwaters.com. If you've considered the natural beauty of a wood floor, then go with a winner. Ability Wood Flooring has been a trusted source and family-owned and operated since 1950. Ability Wood Flooring is voted best of the best and are featured on A&E's Zombie House Flipping. Ability proudly works with Florida's top builders, winning many awards in the Parade of Homes. Get a free design consultation today. AbilityWoodFlooring.com on the line with me right now, second visit from Andy Berger. Welcome back to the program, Andy. Well, thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be back with you and your listeners. Well, I know that you lead this thing called Voices Against Trafficking, and you've been involved in this, uh, the heart for it. Tell us again, what exactly was the beginning of that heart for this, this really important cause? Absolutely. Well, back before there was a term called human trafficking, I was trafficked by immediate and extended family members from ages six months to 17 years old. And, um, you know, God met me on that journey at age five, which was my first attempt at suicide. And he he kept me going and it was very difficult, but there was nowhere to go in those days in the 60s and 70s. Um, and the final straw was uh, when I was 17 and my birth mother tried 
to kill me again. Hmm. So all through that, um, he led me forward. I went to college. I went to law school looking for a way to help others, you know, that were like me, other kids that were already here, but nobody cared about. You know, they seemed to be forgotten or abandoned. Uh, and that's how I felt most of my life. So that's where the, the seed was planted. And I knew if I could just live long enough or be successful enough, I might be able to help others. And that's what happened uh, in 2008 when uh, I started Beulah's Place, our shelter, our short-term shelter program for at-risk homeless kids. You know, if we could just go back, if you could just, I mean, what you said right there is mind-boggling, that even in the midst of while you're still suffering as a victim of trafficking, inside of you there's a heart to want to help others. And I just wonder if uh, how rare that kind of occurrence. Do you hear of that regularly in in uh, the women that are trafficked or even the men, uh, young boys? Do you hear of a heart emerging to try to help people? Is that pretty common or is that rare? Well, I would say no in general. I do know others, but if you put us in a percentile, it would be very, very small. You know, if you took everyone across the country, maybe who did that, I'm not sure if you'd hit 5% or not of wow. the general population. That's what but, I'm but thinking. Maybe, you know, yeah, it'd be very small because it's, it is very hard to do. And I, I don't toot my own horn for my own good. I do it so that people will know, hey, this exists. There is hope, but we have to intercede. We have to listen. We have to acknowledge this horrific elephant in our collective community room here. And and you're right. It's very, very tough for victims. We are always saddled with that stain of what happened to us, no matter how redeemed or how renewed or what kind of new normal we create for yourself, which is what I did. I just knew I never wanted another kid to suffer like I did, you know, when I would scream for God to let me die, mm-hmm. you know, when I would pray that somebody would break through the door and rescue and always being disappointed that nobody came, nobody spoke up. Yeah, I I just have a feeling that so many people get so maybe numbed by the pain and by the loneliness and by the abandonment that you went through. I mean, your own mother, your own birth mother trying to kill you. And I remember, though, that when we talked the first time, uh, there was a strong presence of God that really made the difference for you in your life. He did. When I was five, sitting on that curb of my house, waiting to jump in front of a car so I could just be dead, because I felt if I was six feet under, at least I'd be at peace. No one could touch me. You know, I I wouldn't have to be this shame-filled child uh, that felt like I was everybody's problem and I was the accident they couldn't return, which is what they would tell me, among other things. But um, anyway, so in that moment, I heard in my heart, you know, this beautiful voice that said, this is not the plan I have for you. Uh, Suicide is not the answer. And I thought, wow, you know, that must be God, even though I didn't really know God. I just knew that there was somebody bigger than my mess, bigger than my pain. And I trusted it enough to say, if you keep me alive, basically, whoever you are, then I'll do whatever you call me to do. Oh, that is such a great thing to hear. I I can't even imagine the peace that that brought your young mind when you heard that. It it was amazing. I I kept speaking, and and as I was taken to church on and off, and I think it was an Awana uh, uh, 
evening event or something. And I had kept asking Jesus into my heart over and over because I couldn't see him, but I wanted to believe that he loved all the children, like I had heard someone say, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be loved desperately. And so at that point, I find, I think I was probably eight-ish, maybe. Um, I basically said, if you're really in my heart, I'm going to stop asking you to come into it, and I'm going to trust that you're there. And that was the moment where I think that childlike faith really kicked in, despite the fact that, you know, I did try a couple more times because of the, the beatings and the physical abuse and all the things that went on and the touching and stuff and the violations were so great. You know, we all have those moments, but for a little child being locked up for three months in summer, you know, not being allowed to leave my room, you know, that kind of thing uh, for the whole time. So it was just all those things together. And then having to, when I was in public, then this is what predators do. They manipulate you. You better put on a good face. You know, even if you're at church, you better make sure everybody thinks we're perfect. Kind of like Anne Hatch, the actress who who died recently. And when it came out that her family uh, sexually violated her, and mm-hmm. she did not win against the demon of shame, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But she had all these resources, and even with all the resources, victims struggle their whole life. I believe it. As a pastor, and having counseled many people who went through difficult problems, some same as yours, others where uh, abortion stained and really marked their lives and the regret over it. Uh, It is a lifelong battle, and I think it is for many, many people. And I think that's why I believe your voice, because there's hope that God brought right in the middle of your story, right in the middle of your pain, God brought hope to you. He did. And you know, Mike, one of the things, uh, I haven't shared it very often, but I remember waking up one night when I was young, and again, it's going to be somewhere around that 10-year-old-ish age. Uh, Six decades later, it's a little hard to remember everything, but um, I remember waking up, and I had had this dream about speaking to thousands and thousands of people, and and all I heard was, you know, sharing my heart, reaching people's hearts. And that's that was the vision God gave me that I lived with for a very long time, that, you know, someday I would touch other people's hearts and I would be good. And someday turned into reality for you because you do get yes. to speak to people. And I am so grateful that you're doing that today. You're doing it to countless people that you can't even see with your own eyes. But the miracle of radio is bringing your story, and not only through our terrestrial airwaves, but also through the podcast. People are hearing your story and freshly receiving hope in Jesus Christ, who is our hope. He is our rock. And that's what, that's what he is for you. And that's what he's been for you. You know, when we, we talk about what young people are going through, you know, you went through this a number of years ago when you were younger and sadly the enemy just keeps finding new ways. It seems to, to put young ladies, young men in bondages in situations. And there's recently this outrageous story where it's been discovered about the group of young ladies, college students that were filmed in a locker room. And then that film shows up on porn sites on the internet. That's got to be the most disgustingly disturbing story I've heard in a long time. It is. And for those girls, you know, the humiliation, the shame, we don't know what their center is in life, whether they'll make it, you know, through 
uh, and live through that and past it and, and be successful or if they'll self-medicate or if maybe even take their own life because of the horrendous shame. And, and think about the fact that they thought they were safe. They thought that you know, they, there was an innocence about them, and now that's been completely violated. It's something that has been stolen that can never be returned. You can't take it back to Walmart. You know, innocence is not something that can be returned once it's been stolen and violated. Mm-hmm. And so it's just horrific. But then the appetite, shall I say, of of Americans and other people for for just brutal videos of child abuse or or violations, the consumption of this is what scares me more, Mike, because it's out of control. It's a free-for-all, and we as a national community have not seen fit to stand up in every church, regardless of the nomination of every house of worship, and say, that's it. You know, we're taking back our kids. We're taking back, you know, the the right to be able to protect them. And we're also demanding that you as leaders and legislators and whoever, whether it's city council or, you know, all the way up to the White House, do something about the predatory activities. The predatory is a good word because that's exactly what it is. I mean, they are just consuming up lives and just without any call, without any worry, without any apparent repentance or concern, uh, forever changing the life of young people, all because of their own wants, all because of their own pleasures. I think most Americans yeah. are aware of all that's gone on with Jeffrey Epstein, uh, but then you have uh, his cohort is still in prison on this, uh, Miss Maxwell, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, she is. And she should have gotten the full 65 years that she could have gotten for all of her crimes. But somehow, you know, it got reduced to 20 years. And in, in I won't call it the country club correction facility, but let's just say it's not terribly difficult to be there. And yes, she may be 80 if she lives through the next 20 years and she actually stays in jail, but that's not nearly enough for all the lives she ruined that she purposely recruited, purposely groomed young girls and 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 led them into that den you know i think uh, i don't know if your listeners know this but i want to share that we know now besides the tangible recruiting that she did but one in five kids right now today are contacted by predators on social media so 20 percent of every child in this country is already being uh preyed upon and we know that 80% of human trafficking victims and child human trafficking victims uh, originated via the Internet. They got lured in. Mm -hmm. And so we have got to do a better job of we we protect our stuff in the storage units. We put sensors around our churches and our schoolyards and things like that. But who is watching your child or my child or someone else's child today online or on the computer, especially now with all of the things going on in the school system? You know, you know, where's be, the Department of Education saying, hey, we need to protect kids? Yeah, we, we've got to see that as parents. We've got to see that that responsibility falls, first of all, in the home because it is. You can be in the safety of your own bedroom as a child, and yet that's that could be in one way the most dangerous place in the world if they're on unguarded not observed, not no accountability on what's being viewed, what's being watched, and these uh, predators just have their way and get into the minds of these young people, and before long they can become trapped in this scheme. 
Absolutely. And we know that by age 14, and this is across the board, doesn't matter if kids are Christian or not, that by the age of 14, uh, teens have already sent or received nude photos on their phone or or over email or on social media. How does that happen? How is that okay? Why aren't we more upset about those things? Because those kids then, uh, statistically, what we know from reporting, and again, we don't know everything uh, because not everything's reported, but of those kids at age, by age 14, they are five times more likely to commit suicide. Tell us about Voices Against Trafficking. Absolutely. We are kind of a network of, of networkers, uh, and what that means is we are a hub of individuals, organizations, churches, nonprofits who say we want to join together our voices collectively and fight, you know, against human trafficking, all human trafficking, and especially, you know, sexual exploitation of children. But we work together. Um, we're international and we provide tools, public awareness tools, like our free quarterly forums where we bring voices and information and, and things you can do now to help yourself uh, through Facebook and YouTube for free. Um, so we have a short program there. We have our book, Voices Against Trafficking, The Strength of Many Voices Speaking as One, which is a good handbook to start conversations. I think every library, whether it's home, business, church, school, whatever, should have a copy because you'll learn about gaming. You'll learn about what to look for on the Internet. You'll learn about how things happen in the travel industry and so much more. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to provide tools to educate the general public. Um, And also, you know, the simple things that the public can do right now, your listeners today, if they have no time and no money, they could go to our website, voiceagainsttrafficking.com, and look up the helplines and hotlines and put the top four in their phone. That covers suicide, child abuse, trafficking, and and more. So those are things that we can be prepared for to at least say, hey, at least I have a number if I see something. I can confidently say something by calling this number, and they'll help me figure it out. What a great resource. Again, that website is VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. Simple as that, right? Yes, absolutely. And I'm excited that in the next uh, month or so, we are going to be rolling out our first curriculum program. Uh, we we paired up with the Paratus Group, and it's called First Responders Program, meaning you and your family can be first responders before before any tragedy happens. And four minutes a day to create a habit over 90 days that will help protect you, yours, your loved ones, your your friends. And uh, we're excited to get that out there as another tool. Well, speaking of another tool, tell us about Beulah's Place. Yes. Uh, Beulah's Place is the mustard seed for voices against trafficking. Um, in the last 14 years, uh, my husband and myself, we've been able to help assist or to rescue over 300 at-risk homeless teens, some uh, trafficked, some abandoned but they were all sexually abused or violated and hurt. Mm. And out of those, you know, 300, we sent uh, at least 10 or so through universities. We, they have jobs. They've graduated high school. They're back in community. And we created a safe house system uh, in order for these kids to be taken off the street, get stabilized, and then be reintegrated into their communities. At a, at a young age, at, you know, 18, which is young compared to when I got help. I was in my 30s before I got right, help. Right, 
My goodness, you're doing so much. Thousands of people are benefiting from your love and your care. Andy Berger, thank you so much for being with me again. We'll be checking in with you again in a a, a couple of months and find out what's happening on this front as we continue to pray for you and Voices Against Trafficking, Beulah's A Place, all of these initiatives from Andy Berger. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Mike, and thanks to all your listeners. And we'll be back in a moment here on Afternoons with Mike. Are you looking for the right franchise to open your own business? Green Flag Franchise has the experience and knowledge to help match your business plan with your goals and values. Is your business ready to become a franchise? Green Flag Franchise will help you explore the potential and benefits of franchising your existing company. For a free consultation and coaching, visit GreenFlagFranchise.com. That's GreenFlagFranchise.com. Palm Beach Atlantic University Orlando offers three distinct areas of study. An evening Master's of Science in Clinical Mental Health Counseling, an evening Bachelor's of Science in Human Services, and our new Daytime Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. All of our courses are offered at our beautiful campus on Millennia Boulevard. For more information or to schedule a tour, call 844-PBA-ORLANDO. That's 844-PBA-ORLANDO. On the line with me right now is Greg Roman. He is the director of the Middle East Forum. He's also a political commentator, a former political advisor to the Deputy Foreign Minister of Israel. Greg Roman, thank you for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's really great to talk with someone. I know that you are a spokesperson. I've seen a lot of your videos uh, representing Israel uh, on uh, television and on radio programs. Uh, Just uh, your thoughts right now on where America is. There's been a lot of discussion. I know that former President Trump in uh, moving uh, our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem caught a lot of flack. Uh, and that just is always in the news right now about where we are with anti-Semitic thoughts and statements. Where do you see us right now? I think right now the country is divided to four camps as it relates to the American relationship with Israel. And I would divide that based on the American relationship with the Jewish faith. As it relates to the state of Israel and its policies, you have those in Group 1 and the Democratic Party who have a pretty open and honest relationship with Israel, Mm -hmm. and they're philo-Semitic. They see themselves as supporting the Jewish state. They have some political concerns, but they are um, addressed through diplomatic dialogue. They're against the Iran deal, but they tend to vote Democratic because they like to think first of their country's priorities from the left, rather than joining a foreign policy issue and a domestic policy issue. You then have those in the Republican Party, or to the great majority of those in the Republican Party, who are pro-Israel. They favor a strong uh, U.S.-Israel relationship, and they're in favor of a Judeo-Christian value uh, assessment when it comes to not just looking at their domestic priorities, but also their foreign policy priorities. So the mainstream within the Democrat Party and, and, and a great majority of the Republican Party are pretty good on Israel. But it's the latter two groups that I'm worried about. Okay. First, those on the radical left, or what I would call the regressive left. These are the Ilhan Omars of the Democratic Party. These are the Rashida Tlaibs. These are the uh, AOCs, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
uh, even Bernie Sanders to a certain extent in the Senate. Uh, he's had pro-Israel musings in the past during the 2014 war with Gaza between Hamas and Israel. He actually came out, said Israel's right to defend itself, and his entire audience ended up booing him right there on the run-up to the uh, Democratic primaries, which were taking place to uh, decide who would run eventually against Donald Trump. Now, that regressive left body uses anti-Semitic tropes of double standards, of delegitimizing the idea of there being a Jewish state, and frankly, demonizing the idea of a right for Israel to exist as a Jewish state for the Jewish people in their ancestral homeland. And they try to say that their criticism is wrapped in human rights language, but they're basically, at the end of the day, trying to deny the right to Jewish sovereignty in that land. And they're doing it because they either have a electorate which is leaning more and more towards an anti-Israel position, not necessarily saying anti-Semitic, I don't conflate the two always, mm -hmm. but they do not care about the U.S.-Israel relationship, and they look at everything through the prism of intersectionality, the idea that if there is a certain group which is struggling to gain access to majoritarian resources, that they have to find a certain alliance or an affinity with other so-called struggling groups. So if you're a member of Black Lives Matter, and you're supporting these regressive left politicians, you're going to make the argument that you have to support Palestinians, even though you support terrorism, because you're both involved in this quote-unquote struggle. Now, the Democratic Party, the mainstream Democratic Party, did a pretty good job of trying to beat back these anti-Israel and some borderline, even some overt anti-Semitic politicians in the primaries that took place, and they're still taking place in the run-up to the midterm congressional election. That's right. You had tens of millions of dollars invested by Democratic pro-Israel donors that went to beat back the anti-Israel surge that came with the election of Joe Biden and the rise of this regressive left progressive caucus that was in 2018 in the midterms that took place when Donald Trump was president. They're not doing good politically. They've led the Democratic Party to the outskirts of the American majority, and I think they're paying a political price for it. It doesn't mean that they're going away, though. We have to be very, very careful about engaging with them, and every time that they empathize with the terrorists, every time that they say something which is, I think, not just anti-American in nature, but anti-American national security, they have to be called out. And I'm glad I have the opportunity to talk about that on your show today. Well, the I'm go ahead, go ahead. The fourth group. Sorry. The fourth group, which is very, very concerning for me, is a growing minority of Republicans that, under the veneer of what they call America First policies, I'm not talking about Trump America First here, okay? I'm talking about people like Nick Fuentes from this uh, arch-conservative, uh, uh, anti-Semitic, um, anti-Israel, uh, isolationist group of ultra-conservative Republicans that are equating American support for Israel as some sort of uh, dual national loyalty on behalf of mainstream Republican politicians. And they are not using uh, subtropic uh, uh, tropes like the, those on the left in the Democrat Party. They are actually overtly saying that America should not support Israel because America is a Christian country, 
which, you know, if you look at the majority, yes, majority of Americans are Christians, but there's equal rights for everyone, right? We're, we're all enshrined in the same constitution. We all have the same basic rights. But they are using what I think is a wicked adaptation of Christian nationalism uh, to say that supporting a Jewish state is anathema to Christian values. Hmm. And I think that goes against biblical edicts like Israel, if you're, depending on which perspective of Christianity, which ecumenical community you come from, Israel is the apple of God's eye. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. There's a lot of language that comes out of the Bible, both from the Old and the New Testament, that sort of provide a biblical foundation. But they're warping a lot of God's word, and I think they're warping a lot of what people are saying and saying that if an American supports Israel, you're actually being anti-American. Mm. And I'm very concerned about them, and even some members of Congress. Uh, Paul Gosar, um, others have been hosted by these groups. Uh, uh, there's a, a congresswoman from, from Tennessee, and they have to do the best that they can to shy away from that. Because if anything, it is not just, <coughs> excuse me, I think an anti-American position to not favor a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. I think you're starting to go into the lines of these people even being approached by conservative Islamist preachers those who may come from the Muslim faith who are saying, hey, we're anti-LGBT rights, we're anti-abortion, mm-hmm. we're anti-other, um, which I think are conservative tenants, and they're saying, because we're all anti-all this, you should be anti-Israel too, just like us. And people really have to be careful who they're engaging with, especially from that alienated, xenophobic side of the Republican Party. And like I said, they're a small minority, but they're loud and they have the ability to influence a lot. They're even turning to the evangelical against Israel itself. So those are the four groups, I think, that currently categorize support for the Ameri- or support or, or, or against or, or neutral on the American-Israel relationship. How strong do you think the Democratic part of your equation on the side of those that are generally in favor of Israel? and have made statements about that. How strong do you feel that group is against the push from this progressive left, which would be in the, the negative half of what you're wanting? How do you feel the Democrats are, are holding up on that, that are supporting Israel? I think for 14 years, they were nowhere to be found. From the beginning of the Obama administration until 2021, they may have made loud musings and closed small rooms, but they didn't do anything that, as you say, put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. But when they finally saw the destructive nature of the Green Deal, the Green New Deal, of resolutions which were being passed out of Congress calling for cutting American aid to Israel, and, and, and even the Iran nuclear deal is something which we can talk about on the side, but I think that's still staying quiet in these Democratic rooms. But as it relates to the overt anti-Israel tendencies, of a rising amount of Democrat members of Congress, they finally came out swinging. We have two main groups, one which is called the Democratic Majority for Israel, the other APAC. And APAC, by the way, gives money to pro-Israel candidates in both the Democrat and the Republican Party. They see the issue as, 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 as nonpartisan. They'll support a politician who's pro-Israel at the end of the day. And they spent tens of millions of dollars to try to beat back those anti-Israel politicians in Democratic primaries. Luckily, in Republican primaries, there's not really anybody who has anyone who, who has electability that is an anti-Israel position. So there wasn't that much use of resources on that end. But I think that they put a lot of them. They sent a lot of these members of Congress uh, back home with their bags packed from Washington. This is the first time that they actually did that. But it is still very much a threat within the Democratic Party of this group 
of regressive left politicians who will reorganize for 2024 and who may even have some pass the buck and win their election in 2022. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the, Democrat, the Democratic majority of, 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 of pro-Israel politicians have to be aware of. I know that you've got your finger on the pulse as to what Jewish leaders are feeling as they look and kind of analyze what's going on in America right now. What do you think the attitude would be of the leaders in Israel when they hear reports that Bernie Sanders might actually be one of the leading people in the 2024 presidential race? What would the national Israel leaders be thinking about that? So putting my Israel hat on, I just spent two months there. Uh, with my in-laws, uh, my wife, my wife's Israeli, and there is um, not really that great of a fear, I think, from Israeli politicians seeing that someone like Bernie Sanders would even be elected to office. Uh, but let's pose the unimaginable, which is he may be uh, the Democratic Party's nominee, which I, I don't think it's going to happen. But if he was, I think that Israelis have a policy staying out of American politics, but they would do what's necessary if he were elected president to chart an independent defense, national security, and foreign policy, while still trying to maintain the U.S.-Israel relationship. At the end of the day, and Israel has proved this in every single war it has fought since its establishment in 1948, it does, first and foremost, what's best for Israel. And it even went against the Eisenhower administration, it went against Johnson, it went against Kissinger in 56, 67, and 73. And when it came to peace agreements, or so-called peace agreements with Jordan, Egypt, uh, the Palestinians, which has still not been effectuated, and the Abraham Accords, it's also shown that it's willing to play ball. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, Israel does what's best for Israel, but it tries to maintain that U.S.-Israel relationship. If Bernie Sanders came into play, it might be a little bit harder to do that, but they'd have to, uh, to adjust. The days ahead are quite interesting, aren't they? There's a lot to consider and a lot to think about. But, man, you've brought us really great insight today. Uh, In just a moment, uh, a a minute is all we have left. Tell us a a little bit about where you think we are from the standpoint of the ongoing terrorists of the region. Uh, You mentioned already the Iran deal. Most believers, I think, would uh, have a problem with that. What are are your thoughts, uh, again, about that one? Where we are with first terrorism. Yeah. First and foremost, when a problem starts bubbling up there, it's only a matter of time until it comes here. I think Lindsey Graham said it the best, that the reason why we send American troops to the Middle East is to make sure that a Middle East problem doesn't become an American problem. And to ignore that, to, to not have a troop presence in the region, means that we're eventually going to be inviting some sort of conflict back here at home. So as long as we stay vigilant, as long as we stay proactive in the region. We try to push back Iran's uh, tide, which is now enveloping the rest of the Middle East, then Americans will be safer here in America. And the best way to follow on what's going on is to read a website like my organization, the Middle East Forum, meforum.org, to support us to read our writings and to be educated and informed. So when it does come time to vote, it does come time to have input in the public discussion on these issues, you're, you're, you're very well informed and you have the ability to contribute to the conversation. Well, I thank you for that, and we thank you for being with us, Greg. Greg Roman, he is the director of the Middle East Forum. That web address is meforum.org. And that's all of our time for today. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time right here on The Shepherd.